Hello, everyone. Just like hundreds of years ago, Shakespeare is the most popular game in town. Thank you all so much for joining us here at this wonderful, gorgeous planetarium. Um, and I am, if you don't have a seat, let us know and we'll try to figure out a way to work this out. Um, for this program today, we're beginning with Emily Yates, who's going to tell us a little bit about astronomy and astrology in Shakespeare's day. Then we are going to go into a reading of the Winter's Tale. We're going to do the first three acts, and then we'll take a 10-minute intermission, and then we will do acts four and five. So, without further ado, let me hand this over to Emily. Let's give her a round of applause. <laughs> I've got this one. Hi, everybody. Uh, <laughs> um, my name is Emily Yates, like Derek said. I'd like to thank Derek for inviting me to talk, and also Shannon. Um, she's helped arrange a lot of the really cool productions you guys are going to see today. Um, I'm a PhD candidate, PhD candidate in the English department here at MSU, and I study Shakespeare in particular, so I'm excited to tell you about this. Uh, in Shakespeare's famous tragedy, Romeo and Juliet, we are immediately told in the prologue that the pair are star-crossed lovers, failed, fated to fall in love, but also to die. In Shakespeare's tragedy of King Lear, the Earl of Gloucester tells the young Edmund that these late eclipses in the sun and moon portend no good to us. Fitting for the tragedy, Gloucester believes that the recent phenomena of the sun and the moon being blocked by other celestial bodies suggests that the physical and mental darkness is soon to come. Romeo and Juliet and King Lear are just two of many of Shakespeare's plays where he involves astronomy and astrology. So today I'm going to talk about astrology and astronomy in Shakespeare's day. As you can see on my agenda, I'll start with some definitions, examine the general views of these studies in the 1400s to 1600s, look at naysayers and popular debates surrounding astrology and astronomy, show more fully where astrology appears in Shakespeare's writings, suggest why Shakespeare included astronomy and astrology in his writings, and finally end with a really interesting connection between a famous astrologer and Shakespeare's Winter's Tale. I'd like to begin by addressing the difference between astronomy and astrology. Today we view astronomy as a branch of science that includes a study of space and celestial bodies by mathematicians and physicists. Astrology is viewed as more of a pseudoscience, where practitioners believe the movement and positions of celestial bodies can influence human affairs and the natural world. An astronomer might study black holes or orbital evolutions of planetary systems using complex math and physics. By contrast, an astrologer might tell me that my zodiac sign is Cancer, the crab, and then provide advice based on this. I looked earlier this morning at horoscope.com, for example, and I read that I should try to be careful of missing the forest for the trees today. <laughs> Astrology.com said that odd ideas will be popping into my head today and I should embrace them and think outside the box. Uh, in simpler terms, we can say that astronomy studies the movement of the stars and astrology studies their influence. In Shakespeare's day, the 1500s to the 1600s, this distinction between astronomy and astrology, however, was not as clear. In fact, astronomy and astrology were often used interchangeably. If a distinction was made, astrology was tied to theoretical physics and protochemistry that related the heavens and the earth in precise ways, and astronomy had the benefits but also limitations <coughs> of mathematical purity. 
Astrology was still speculative and involved guessing, but it involved theoretical math as well. So I've, this slide is covered up a little bit on the left, but you'll still be able to see what I'm saying. Uh, for more clarification, we can look to Christopher Hayden. Christopher Hayden was born in England in 1561 and was a prominent member of parliament. He's best known, however, for his writings on astrology. His defense of judicial astrology from 1603, the book here has an image of it, was the most substantial English defense of astrology in its day. In this text, Hayden defines astrology as that art which teacheth by the motions, configurations, and influence of the signs, stars, and celestial planets to prognosticate on the natural effects and mutations to come, and the elements and these inferior and elementary bodies. He thus connects astrology to the study of the stars and planets, but also focuses heavily on their influence. And for the rest of the talk, I'll often use astrology and astronomy then interchangeably. In the early modern period, there were also different kinds of astronomy, and they had different uses. Natural astronomy looked at general planetary influences on things like nature and agriculture. How might the planets and stars affect a farmer's crop? Judicial astronomy included precise predictions for the position and influence of the planets intended as advice to individuals. So this would be the closest to what we view as modern day astrology. Horoscopes, much like today, were based on the map of the heavens at the time of a person's birth. Elections were used for choosing the best moment for things like the king or queen's coronation based on when the planets were most favorable. And finally, horary questions were asked to attempt to resolve personal issues according to the, quote, state of the heavens when the questions were being posed. One example of electional astronomy can be found in the coronation of Queen Elizabeth I. Before selecting her coronation date, Elizabeth met with a man named John Dee. Dee was a mathematician, astrologer slash astronomer, and a cult philosopher. He's known as a major intellectual uh, figure in the 16th century England, and he claimed he held conversations with angels, and indeed kept elaborate records of these conversations known as his angel diaries. Dee advised Elizabeth that he sh uh, she should have her coronation at noon on July 15, 1559, based on the projections of the stars. And Shannon has shown us here, this is exactly what the stars looked like on that day. And now I want to turn to discussing some general views of astrology and astronomy in Shakespeare's day. Astrological beliefs permeated the culture of the Renaissance Europe and reached from the lowest to the highest levels of political and intellectual power. These beliefs were also often deeply tied to Christianity. To some, stars were viewed as instruments that God used to show to signs and through which he communicated his displeasure, warnings, and other feelings. The concept of fortune was viewed as God's plan as expressed in the stars, combined with individual will. A lot of knowledge about celestial bodies was produced in almanacs, and we can see an image of one here. They were reference books that included mathematical data from astral charts. This data was interpreted to analyze God's intentions, and the compilers of almanacs were typically very respected people, like physicians, ministers, and mathematicians. People in the Renaissance would have owned and perhaps even had on their persons these uh, annual almanacs. 
And this photo is from the Folger Library. It has an image of the Swallow Almanac from 1633. The pages are for the month of January and February. And I hope you can come somewhat see that the page includes both text and symbols that indicate the phases of the moon and predicted weather alongside a general calendar of events. So despite astrology being respected by many people, there were also plenty of naysayers and debates about it. And the history of attacks on astronomy shows that they began even in the pre-Christian era, developed in new directions with the early church fathers, took another turn after the introduction of medieval Arabic astronomy into the Latin West. They were reformulated by scholastic writers and Italian humanists of the 14th and 15th centuries, and then articulated anew by 16th century Protestant reformers. So naysayers of the 16th century believed that using the stars to predict future events was impossible and foolish. On this slide, I have a, a historical review of a few key naysayers from the mid-1500s to the 1600s. We'll start with William Folk. He wrote Anti-Prognostication in 1560, and he said that sickness and health depend on diverse causes, but nothing at all upon the course of the stars. John Calvin's admonition against astrology judicial, translated to English in 1561, said that astrology was the fruit of a curiosity, not only superfluous and unprofitable, but also evil and wicked. In 1583, Henry Howard wrote in the Defensive Against the Poison of Supposed Prophecies, that wise men do not predict the likelihood or unlikelihood of war or peace by drawing up a figure chart on a sheet of paper but by actively reasoning about the political conditions and human dispositions of surrounding neighbors, and not by observing the planets, but by the act of preparing. Finally, John Chambers' treatise against judicial astrology was so influential that Sir Christopher Hayden, whom we discussed earlier, wrote his defense of judicial astrology as a response in 1603. So I'll discuss a bit later where some of these debates appear in Shakespeare's works, but first I want to bring attention to Shakespeare's interest in astrology and astronomy overall, and the works particularly in stars. Stars come up 76 times in Shakespeare's canon, in 26 different plays, and quite a few sonnets and poems. The stars can be the harbingers of disaster as it relates to war, political secession, or love, and they're often connected to fate and fortune. Take, for example, Sonnet 14. Not from the stars do I my judgment pluck, and yet methinks I have astronomy, but not to tell of good or evil luck, of plagues, of dearths, or seasons quality, nor can I fortune to brief minutes tell, pointing to each his thunder, rain, and wind, or say when princes, if it shall go well, by oft predict that I in heaven find. But from thine eyes my knowledge I derive, and constant stars in them I read such art as truth and beauty shall together thrive. If from thyself to store thou wouldst convert, or else of thee this I prognosticate, thy end and truths and beauty doom and date. In this sonnet, the narrator acknowledges the connection of astrology to judgment and fortune-telling, but ultimately rejects this in a favor of seeing knowledge in the eyes of the subject of the poem, but from thine eyes my knowledge I derive. He compares these eyes to constant stars and chooses to read them instead of the actual stars. Within these eyes he sees truth and beauty. There we go. 
the stars in astrology were also very important in Shakespeare's plays. And this is true not only the text and the plots, but also to their performance. Many of Shakespeare's plays were performed at the famous Globe Theater in London, and on the underside of a section of the playhouse, there are images of the animals of the zodiac. Here you can see an image of the reconstruction of the Globe Theater in London with the painted zodiac sides above. Every afternoon when plays are being staged, then the actors and the audience members who stand around the raised stage can see these paintings and be reminded of astrological influence. And here, we can see the zodiac. So we can see both the constellations as well as uh, the animals and images that connect to them. The influences of astronomy in Shakespeare can continue to be seen in some of his lesser known plays. The tragedy of Antony and Cleopatra, for example, includes a reference to almanacs. The character Enorbaras explains that the passions of Cleopatra for Antony are made of nothing but the finest part of pure love. We cannot call her winds and water sighs and tears. They are greater storms and tempests than almanacs can report. That is, Cleopatra's love and passions for Antony are so great that almanacs cannot predict or even report of them. Another example comes from Shakespeare's history play, Henry VI, Part I. The play opens with the funeral of Henry V, and the character of Gloucester says, hung be the heavens with black, yield day to night. Comets, importing change of times and states, brandish your crystal tresses in the sky, and with them scourge the bad revolting stars that have consented unto Henry's death. The speech shows how people connected the movement of the celestial bodies to the prediction of death, and suggests that the stars have consented to the death of Henry. And here, we should have a projection of a, what a comet looks like. A final example of astrology in a lesser known play is in Shakespeare's Troilus and Cressida. The character Ulysses warns of the influence of the planets. The heavens themselves, the planets, and this center observe degree, priority, and place, and sister, force, proportion, season, form, office, and custom, in all line of order. From the planets, an evil mixture to disorder wander. What plagues and what portents, what mutiny. Ulysses suggests that the planets and the stars observe a very specific order and form, and when the planets mix in an evil way, plagues and mutiny can result. There we go. Um, astrology appears most prominently, however, in Shakespeare's King Lear. The play follows the tragic downfall of the title character, beginning with him demanding his daughters to prove their love for him as he decides how to divide up his kingdom for their inheritance. As he falls into madness, he wrecks the relationships with those around him. Early on in the tragedy, however, is a staged debate between Gloucester and his illegitimate son, Edmund, that mimics the concerns that people in the Renaissance held about astrology. The common interpretation of the debate is that Gloucester represents those following superstitious astrology, and Edmund represents those following scientific rationalism. 
Thus, we can turn to Gloucester's speech to Edmund that I began this talk with, but look at it a little bit more fully. Gloucester says, these late eclipses in the sun and moon pretend no good to us. Though the wisdom of nature can reason it thus, and thus yet nature finds itself scorched by the sequent effects. Love cools, friendship falls off, brothers divide. We've seen the best of our time, machinations, hollowness, treachery, and all ruinous disorders follow us disquietly to our graves. Gloucester suggests that the eclipses are connected to bad fortune, and this may have resonated well with Shakespeare's audience. A major solar eclipse occurred in February of 1598 and another in December of 1601. And just three years after this, Queen Elizabeth died. Here is a depiction of the Uh, Glasser's fear and superstition is connected to astrological phenomena. It's then contrasted with Edmund. After Gloucester ex exits, Edmund expresses his utter disbelief and says, this is the excellent foppery of the world, that when we are sick in fortune, often the surfeit of our own behavior, we make guilty of our disasters, the sun, the moon, and the stars, as if we were villains by necessity, fools by heavenly compulsion, knaves, thieves, and treachers, by spherical predominance, drunkards, liars, and adulterers, by an enforced obedience of planetary influence, and all that we are evil in by divine thrusting on, an admiral evasion of foremaster man to lay his goatish disposition to the charge of a star. <laughs> Edmund tells the misfortunes of people, or he ties the misfortunes of people to their own behavior, not to the sun, the moon, or the stars. And he finds it ridiculous that a man would tie his fortune or his behavior to the place or movement of a star. Edmund continues his rant, however, by demonstrating a deep knowledge of astronomy. My father compounded with my mother under the dragon's tail, and my nativity was under Ursa Major, so that it follows I am rough and lecherous. Tut, I should have been that I am, had the maidenliness star and the firmament twinkled on my bastardy. Edmund here represents the naysayers of astrology, but at the same time, his speech reflects Shakespeare's deep knowledge of the subject. Edmund is saying that he was conceived under the dragon's tail. The dragon's head and the dragon's tail are the two nodes on the moon's path where it intersects, intersects the ecliptic, and the dragon's tail is the descending node where the moon crosses the ecliptic moving south and was considered maleficent, and it detracted from a good horoscope and made a bad one even worse. He also mentions that he was born under Ursa Major, which we know as the Big Dipper and which we have seen up here. Based on these two facts, judicial astrologers might conclude that such a birth date would result in someone that was rough and indeed lecherous. Edmund is dismissing this concept on the placement of the stars at his birth, aligning with his disposition. But in this dismissal, we can also see how Shakespeare was very aware of the complexities of judicial astrology. Yeah. 
So why does Shakespeare include astrology in his work? A short answer would simply be that it was a popular topic at the time. Within specific plays, however, he uses it for more specific reasons. Scholar Francois Larocque suggests that Shakespeare uses astrology as a mechanism for fate in Romeo and Juliet, where the issues of nativity, calendar combinations, or computing in Saints' Day suggest that the characters' humors are totally dependent on the position of the stars during the dog days in Vienna. For Phoebe <laughs> Jensen, astrology provides a cosmological framework in King Lear that allows him to explore deep, unanswerable questions about providence, the origins of evil, the nature of the human heart, and the connection among humans, nature, and the divine. Shakespeare's use of astrology and astronomy overall reflect the different attitudes and beliefs surrounding the study of celestial bodies in the early modern period. And finally, we can ask how does astronomy connect to the winter's tale? The play does not directly invoke invoke debates about astronomy like King Lear, but the Winter's Tale actually has a really unique connection to astronomy. We don't have a great number of reviews or accounts of plays from Shakespeare's day, but a few of these reviews come from a man named Simon Foreman, who you can see up here. Simon Foreman was quite an interesting man. He was an astrologer, but he was also an occultist and an herbalist. He lived from 1552 to 1611, and as the story goes, he told his wife on a Sunday that he would die on the following Thursday. And he did, drowning in the Thames that Thursday. Afterwards, he was also implicated for the murder of Thomas Overbury, and his reputation became mixed. But back to the point is that Foreman leaves us with a manuscript titled The Book of Plays that includes his reviews and impressions of plays he saw in 1610 to 1611. These four plays include a Richard II, though not Shakespeare's, uh, as well as Shakespeare's Macbeth, Cymbeline, and The Winter's Tale. Of The Winter's Tale, Foreman provided his own synopsis of the play. How, quote, Leontes, the king of Sicilia, was overcome with jealousy of his wife with the king of Bohemia, and of how his child was carried into Bohemia, and there laid in a forest and brought up by a shepherd, and more, but I don't want to ruin or spoil the story for anyone who's new to Winter's Tale. Um, and the end of the entry warns the audience that they should beware of trusting feigned beggars or fawning felons, which is a very curious conclusion, but perhaps we can find the answer in the stars. Thank you. <laughs>